Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Queen Elizabeth II was England's longest serving monarch, the second longest reigning monarch in history, second only to Louis XIV of France. She served with 15 prime ministers, beginning with Winston Churchill. Today, we're going to put Winston, or Elizabeth's long, eventful reign in historical context. Our guests are USU Associate Professor of History, Susan Kogan, who joins us, I believe, from the Netherlands by Zoom. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, yes, it's a beautiful sunny day here, and if I weren't talking to you, I might be down at one of the beaches that I've just discovered is about a 15-minute bus ride away. Well, uh, thank you for spending the hour with us. I guess we'll delay your trip to the beach by just, just that long. Um, and in studio with us, USU Distinguished Professor of History, uh, Tammy Proctor. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. I wish I was at the beach, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, I should note, not only Distinguished Professor of History, but one of the hosts of Eating the Past. Right. So, which mm-hmm. we, we love that program on, on UPR. Uh, well, let me start with you, uh, Susan Kogan. Uh, I want to ask each of you, uh, just give me a little bit of your areas of interest and specialty in, in history. Thank you. So uh, in the history department, I teach mainly uh, late medieval and early modern, uh, meaning my teaching captures roughly between like the Black Death, so the middle of the 14th century, and about the early to middle 17th century or 1600s. Um, and my area of research expertise, uh, I'm what's called a social historian. So I'm interested in how people get along or what's even more exciting to me is when they don't. And uh, I also am a historian of gardens. So um, Renaissance gardens are, are my kind of new, my new research pathway, a lot of visual culture and symbolism that way. And I work um, as a historian of early modern, late medieval and early modern England, my expertise is really more located with the first Elizabeth than the second one. Um, But I have been kind of a a fascinated follower of the modern royal family as well. Oh, interesting. Okay, we'll get into that as we go along. Uh, Tammy Proctor, uh, remind us of your areas of specialty. Well, um, unlike Susan, who studies a period when kings and queens still had power, um, (laughs) I'm a modern British historian, uh, work on Britain and its empire, mostly in the 19th and 20th centuries. And uh, a lot of my work centers around the the two world wars, the First World War in particular, um, the Boy Scouts and the Girl Guides in Britain. And really one of my first um, research interactions, I suppose, with... um, Queen Elizabeth II is is through the records about her girl guiding days um, in the 1930s before she was queen. So. Interesting. Oh, well, well, we'll have you talk about that as we go along. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, again, we'll start with uh, Susan Kogan. Um, just your general thoughts on on the on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. This long era, 70 years of the Second Elizabethan era. Yeah, it's. Um it was really kind of, uh, I mean, a shock, but then again, not, you know, she was 96. But when we uh, when we were in Copenhagen, um, when the news started coming through that the royal family was moving, uh, was sort of descending en masse up to Balmoral, and I thought, well, this can't be good. Um, and some British friends had said, oh, they were certain she was already gone, and it just hadn't been, hadn't been um, announced yet. But it's really kind of sad to see the end of that era go. Um, as loaded as I realize that era has been with 
issues like colonialism and um, and all of the kind of the baggage that comes along with that. Um, and I, while I acknowledge all of that, I was I was still sort of really disappointed to see that go. Also for the for the fact that you know here was this woman in this incredibly kind of powerful position. Right? Like like Tammy said earlier, not as powerful as the, the monarchs that I study 500 years ago. But we have seen a working mother on the throne, you know, for the last 70 years and grandmother and you know, the, the power that that can have um, for young women. I, I think, I mean, we're looking at probably at least three generations of male monarchs in England now. So so that we've really seen the passing of of an age. Hmm. Tammy Proctor, your general thoughts just on the ending of this era. Yeah, I've been thinking about it a little bit. Um, you know, people have really strong feelings about the monarchy, obviously, um, in Britain, and about Queen Elizabeth II. And, and a lot, I think, depends on where you sit in terms of your own personal history. And um, I read kind of an interesting little reflection uh, from Billy Bragg, who's a, a musician um, in Britain, saying, you know, it's kind of hard for him even though he's not a monarchist and, and doesn't particularly follow the royal family, it's hard not to associate Queen Elizabeth with his parents um, who were about the same age and, and to see it as a, a passing of a, a real generation, you know, that, that came through the Second World War, that um, in many ways stood for a lot of the, the values that, that certain British populations hold you know, the things that, that um, kind of marked their lives in the 20th century. Um, so I think that that's, that's really one of the, the things that has evoked a response is this idea that she's the last of a generation. Um, now, of course, on the, on the other side of it, there's a lot of people who also uh, can't really uh, separate her from her role as as monarch during the dissolution of empire and um, the violence that accompanied that. So I really, it's it's a passing of a generation in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to follow up with you on on the war. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, Elizabeth would have been quite young mm-hmm. uh, during that era, but it, but as with everybody who went through that, I imagine it had a strong formational influence upon her. Yeah, and I think that, again, she already is really serving as a symbol even as as princess because um, she and Princess Margaret were evacuated um, at the beginning of the war along with, you know, uh, lots of other children in Britain to rural areas to get them out of London where the um, they would have been subject to bombing or that was the concern. Um, she and, and Margaret went to Windsor. Castle, which is about 20 miles outside of central London. Uh, But even as princess, she made a speech to the children of Britain and the empire about how children should act in war. So she gets kind of um, co-opted, you know, as a symbol, even as young as she was. She was a teenager. And then I think when she turns 18, which is at the very end of the war, uh, she joins the ATS, the as a driver, she learns to do um, vehicle maintenance and uh, driving for the auxiliary uh, service. So, you know, she's she's doing war service in a, in a multitude of ways in the Second yeah. World War. Yeah. Uh, Susan Kogan, you're um, given the perspective there as you're 
you have been in Europe, right? Various mm-hmm. countries as as the queen is failing and then as she dies, what's what's the reaction been? Well, really the first time that I was sitting still long enough to to listen to um, some TV news uh, was a, a Friday, I think it was, um, in Hamburg. And the thing that struck me was that Germans seemed, at least on this particular channel with these particular journalists, um, communicated an anxiety about what will the future hold for German-British relations. And they attributed um, a lot of the the post-war smoothing over of Anglo-British relations to Queen Elizabeth, um, that she, you know, she came from, um, she descended from um, a German dynasty. She was married into, um, into a, a kind of well, Danish and German noble houses, and that she had done quite a lot through, I guess, what we would probably call soft diplomacy through visits, nothing you know, official royal visits, but not official sort of government visits, but but that her sense of affinity and perhaps kinship with um, with Germany um, and with the German people was perceived to have helped to heal German-British relations after the war. Interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tammy Proctor, you talked about, you know, because Susan had... had uh, compared, you know, first Elizabeth to second Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Then you said you know, that that was then when they had real power, and now they don't have real power. But there's some, I guess it's soft power, right? It's Well, they have wealth, yeah. um, which actually probably marks them as different from Susan's period in terms of monarchy, too. I mean, they, they had wealth, but in this case, the, the royal family has a lot of personal wealth. It's actually... I think there might be an article in the New York Times today about it. I think I saw a headline. But um, so they have power. It's uh, but they wield it more as celebrities than really as um, as you know sovereigns uh, in in that sense. You know they're they're important for ceremonial occasions for tourism. As I said, they have these massive real estate holdings. <laughs> you know. Um, so it's not that they're without power, but it's a different kind of power than what you might associate with, say, Elizabeth I, who, you know, is, you know, directing the British Navy and, yeah. you know, um, and, and putting people into uh, prison for opposing her, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Susan Kogan, uh, maybe maybe do a little more comparing and contrasting. This is kind of a long, slow fade, right? Loss of The loss of power. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from Elizabeth I to Elizabeth II. Yeah, um, well, it was funny because as Tammy was was talking just then, I thought, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is not to say that modern royals um, are exempt from behaving badly, but you know, the the kind of kind of raw power that came with Elizabeth I. She's um, known for at least once when she was really upset with one of her. Um, top male advisors um, hurling her shoe at him. Mm-hmm. And this was just, you know, this was accepted as, you know, this is what Elizabeth does in a fit of pique. And and that I don't think that that would have been unusual for any late medieval or early modern monarch to just start throwing things at their, at their advisors. Um, and that certainly would not be, that, w- that wouldn't be something that, that would be as acceptable now, for sure. But I mean, that's sort of a bit of levity. But yeah, the the 
the sort of aggregation of, of more and more, the movement of more and more political power away from the monarch, um, you know, took a period of centuries. And um, so it was, it was a slow kind of thoroughgoing process in the end. But, um, and like Tammy said, there, um, modern royals, at least British royals, are really more celebrity than sovereign. Um, that, and I, but I also think that that'll depend on which country you're in. We were, I was in The Hague earlier today and walked by the palace there, which is just, it's walking past a gated mansion. I mean, it's it's their equivalent of Buckingham Palace, but it's it's nothing like Buckingham Palace. You know, the um, the security is different. The access, how close you are to um, between the the closed gate and the front of the building, it's you know what 30, 40 feet maybe. Um, and there were no guards. You know, in the in the little there were guard houses, but no little guards. So, so I'm seeing. But there are real differences in in other European monarchies with the kind of the degree of celebrity um, in comparison to what we see uh, when what we see in London or what we see in Britain. Mm. So, um, as to a, as to comparisons, I mean, I have to hold myself back, or I could just I could lapse into a lecture. So <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'd like you both to comment on you know. There's Elizabeth and her official duties. There's Elizabeth, the mother and grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. And both have had an influence mm-hmm. on on generations. Maybe we'll start with you, uh, Tammy Proctor. This, um, you know, in fact, I've been reading that she took some criticism for kind of herself emphasizing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a good mother. I'm a good grandmother. I'm, I'm, that's part of my duty is to set a good example in those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there were a lot of expectations um, on her shoulders when she uh, took over the throne because um, the scandal of, of her uncle's abdication had kind of destroyed the myth of the, you know, the happy royal family. And th- there was um, a sense that it was up to her to restore it. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to do because, you know, every family is a real family with (laughs) real problems. And when you're living it out in, in, um, you know, the tabloids, it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to maintain. So I think she had to walk a line between saying, you know, she had gravitas as a, as a sovereign, um, that she understood and could, uh, really undertake her official duties, but that she was also devoted to her family. And, you know, a couple of times she had to skip official duties because she was pregnant. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, so I, I think she probably did as good a job as possible at walking that line. I don't know, maybe Susan has a different perspective, but I think I think she tried to embody both of those. Mm-hmm. What's your perspective, Susan Kogan? Yeah, I... I agree with Tammy. Um, I think she had, I mean, if you think about it, she thrown at age 25. That's so young. It's incredibly young. And, you know, when I talk to my students about this, I remind them, like, this is, this is not that much older than you are. And even as a constitutional monarch, the, the weight that would fall on, on a person's shoulders, and, of course, she already had two small children at the time and to be thrown into um, thrown into the responsibilities that she had and really have to navigate 
suddenly being a full-time working parent, um, I think would have been really challenging. And yes, she had, you know, she had all sorts of support structures and nannies and, and so on, but that, I think that would still be really difficult to navigate. Um, I think that that's one aspect um, that Peter Morgan in, in one of his many Elizabeth related franchises, uh, the crown has done, has shown so well is the, this, this kind of uh, tension between her motherhood and, and her job. Mm. What uh, you brought up some, you know, some popular media. What, uh, what do you think the effect of that has been? There's been a lot of, you know, you mentioned the crown. There's been, there's been a lot. Yeah. Well, Peter, I mean, Peter Morgan in particular has, has made a quite a nice living off of, mm -hmm. um, viewers appetites for or theater goers appetites for Elizabeth's life story. Um, Netflix does really well between the crown and then other kind of documentary series, you know, life is of the Windsors and, and other things like that. Um, there's obviously a, a robust appetite for stories about the queen, both documentary. So one would think more based in fact, and then also, um, you know, the crown, which, which takes some, some license, some artistic license. Um, but I, I think one of the things that that shows us really powerfully is, is how much her story still resonates. I don't know what viewership of, of that show is like in, in Britain, but I know I checked Netflix numbers yesterday. It was number eight and today, number seven, mm. um, of the top 10 Netflix um, shows being whoops, being watched, and I mean that you know the, the fact that it's climbing um, and it's I think it had been below ten number ten, but it's been climbing since her death. Um, just you know tells us something that that we're anxious to connect with with her story, um, whether in this this almost fabled now. Um, period of the of her earlier life around the um, the aftermath of the Second World War and her early reign um, or her her later life mm. just connecting with the human story of it just uh, I want to ask you both um, where's the fascination with the royals come from especially the United States we're supposed to be Republican lowercase are right <laughs> we don't have royals maybe, maybe, maybe that's where it comes from we don't have royals so so we're fascinated uh, first uh, susan kogan oh boy i wish you had tammy go first on that one. <laughs> I, I can um, you, you want to go first tammy yeah i i mean i it's really hard to explain and you know there does seem to be an enduring um love affair with like rich out of touch british white people you know think of Downton Abbey also it's there's something about the um the pomp and the hierarchy of that that's appealing and and maybe it's you know also just again the appeal of celebrity um if I had to guess I would say that part of it might be from uh the two world wars and the way that the royal family in both cases in Britain um you know served as symbols of, uh, you know, the empire and the nation and, and uh, being steadfast and that, that maybe that sort of sparked an interest. But 
um, yeah, I don't know. I really can't explain it because mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems kind of bizarre to me. Yeah, yeah, but it's there, right? Susan yeah. Kogan, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, like Tammy, and this is, Tammy, you didn't help me out here because I was hoping you had an answer because I don't. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but yes, I, I agree with Tammy that, first of all, I, I don't have an answer for it. And, and secondly, it seems that the bond that, and of course, I, I was born well after these wars. So I, I can't speak to this from my own experience, my really my parents' experience either, but it seems that there was a, a, a pretty durable bond between the UK and the US um, throughout the Second World War and after it. And, you know, that, that even came out in fiction, like, um, uh, was it 95 Charing Cross Road, 94 Charing Cross Road, um, something like that, where the story about a a writer in the U.S. who ended up sending care packages over to to her counterparts in um, in Britain, and uh, just the again that durable power of a of a relationship or a special friendship, if you will, that was you know had a lot of, of background before the war, but certainly was forged um, even more so in that in the post-war period with, you know, we can all sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and get on with it. And I know Churchill was, was a, a huge force. I mean, remember my, my grandparents and, and um, parents talking quite favorably about how, how Churchill had helped the U S to save, you know, um, save certain things, um, during the, during the war period. So it's, but I've, I've wondered about that for a long time about why is it that Americans are so fascinated with royalty? And I think one of you said this a a minute ago that we don't have them, you know, not officially. Um, I, I, I look back at kind of the JFK era and I wonder if some of, of that, the, the memory we created uh, around that, was that was the closest thing we'd had to royalty. Yeah, certainly I, the Camelot era, right? Yeah, yeah I was just going to say that I think, um, I think that the modern fascination with uh, the British monarchy in particular probably is, dates to the 1950s. And a lot of it may have to do with Grace Kelly and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. her marriage because then, um, you know, she gets kind of aligned as this fairy tale princess. She's not that much different in age than Elizabeth. There's this, you know, lifestyles of the the royals, you know, that that gets played in the in the uh, media of the 50s. Uh, because, you know, I'm trying to think of examples in the 1930s of of American fascination with royalty and other than, you know, getting caught up in the the divorce and abdication crisis uh, in the media again. I don't know that people were all that interested in the 1920s um, in the way that they were later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it could, could date from Grace Kelly. Yeah, yeah. And now I'll just add parenthetically about half the Hallmark movies are, you know, it's a yeah, <laughs> uh, a, 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 a shopkeeper becomes a princess. You know, uh-huh, yeah, the Princess of, Diaries kind the, of phenomenon. The, that's yeah. right. Not that I watch any of those. I, yeah, right. <laughs> I do watch some of those. Yes. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to I'll do a comparison with uh, Queen Victoria. There's some and, and get into colonialism, empire, right? Mm-hmm. Loss of empire. 
how that happened, and there's some criticisms there, right? Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth presided over part of that, right? Right. Uh, we have with us a distinguished professor of history at USU, Tammy Proctor, and uh, associate professor of history, Susan Kogan. Uh, and we're talking about Queen Elizabeth II and uh, the, the, the second Elizabethan era, which uh, ended here uh, just recently. We now have uh, King Charles III. More following this. Support for Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio is made possible through a grant from Utah Humanities. Listen to episodes on this station through the UPR mobile app or online at upr.org. Support also comes from Zion Canyon Music Festival's 12th annual production, with live music from national touring acts Diggin' Dirt, The Uninvited, Strange Americans, Smoke Holler, Amanda Barrick, and more. September 23rd and 24th in Springdale, Utah. Information at ZionCanyonMusicFestival.com. The Great Salt Lake Collaborative and Salt Lake Community College are calling for submissions from writers of all genres, photographers and artists ages 15 and older for the Great Salt Lake Anthology. The deadline for submissions is no later than midnight on September 21. And join us for the Great Salt Lake Anthology Gala on October 27 from 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Gallivan Center in Salt Lake City. Selected works will be read and on display. More details online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you know, Queen Elizabeth II, England's longest-serving monarch, died recently. The funeral is coming up on Monday. Um, and uh, we're talking about this this long era, 70 years, uh, the, the reign of Queen Elizabeth uh, the, the II. That's a long era. A lot happened during that time. We're just talking about some of it with uh, Susan Kogan, who's Associate Professor of History at USU, and Tammy Proctor, who's a USU Distinguished Professor of, uh, of History. Um, so, Tammy Proctor, let me start with you on this. I'm, I've been thinking of a lot of parallels between Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth, right? Um, one of those is, you know, the, the family life that we were talking about, right? There, there's a prototype and an example for Queen Elizabeth from Queen Victoria. Um, but I, I'd like to get into the, the empire, right? Uh, Queen Victoria presided over kind of the zenith of the empire, right? Mm-hmm. Then there began, began a decline. Uh, England uh, lost its empire. And, um, you know, there were some things that happened there that were, you know, atrocities. And, and uh, Queen Elizabeth presided over some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah. So in terms of Victoria, uh, you know, she's the first empress of India. So this is the period when when India becomes uh, the, you know, the so-called jewel in the crown of the the British Empire. Um, And the height of the British Empire is um, during Victoria and the the men who immediately followed her. the last emperor of India is Elizabeth's father. So by the time Elizabeth takes over, you know, it's a, it's a crumbling empire and a new commonwealth. And I don't think that it's a, um, an accident that one of the things Elizabeth II is most associated with is the commonwealth. Um, I think one of the ways she tried to make a mark was to encourage this notion of the Commonwealth of Nations as, um, you know, this sort of association of um, 
initially former British colonies. Now, of course, the Commonwealth includes, you, you can apply for membership even if you had no association with uh, the British Empire in the past. So I, I think maybe the most recent member is Rwanda or Togo, some you know, which was not a British colony. Um, but in terms of the imperial um, issue and, and the kind of, um, I guess, uh, real uh, negativity that has emerged uh, in the last few days, uh, especially on social media from, from um, certain people, it, it's not that surprising when you think about what happened in Ireland, when you think about the history of... Um, decolonization, particularly in places like West Africa, where, you know, there were um, real atrocities that accompanied that process. And, and Elizabeth was, you know, the presiding monarch. Um, You know, she's not as a, as an individual, necessarily responsible, but, you know, she's not just an individual. Mm. Her, her role is who she is, um, in many cases. And so, uh, you know, I think that's that's why it's hard to overlook um, all of the things that she presided over, um, some of which are extremely ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is kind of tricky, right? Because she's sort of figurehead, right? But mm-hmm. but a symbol, but a, but a symbol. Yeah, and and there are times where she has, uh, you know, during her her reign, she made public statements or. Um, you know, I'm thinking of when she goes to Northern Ireland and she meets with Sinn Féin um, leader Martin McGinnis, where she's clearly trying to make a statement. Um, so she is a figurehead, but the kind of public appearances and and utterances that she um, she's responsible for also speak to British policy. And so I think a lot of the criticism comes from the fact that she didn't necessarily speak up in times when perhaps she should have. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, you know, again, it's a hard thing to second guess because, you know, her role, especially over the years, you know, I suspect by the time, you know, she's in her 80s, she probably doesn't care what people think about her as much as she did, you know, when she was 25, as Susan said. Mm -hmm. Uh, Susan Kogan, uh, your thoughts on on this, this kind of this, uh, you know, thin line, figurehead, but simple, but but she does have some power in what she chooses to say and, and who she chooses yeah. to meet with, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, there's uh, there's been this uh, kind of ethos of um, never complain, never explain. Um, and the crown as an entertainment venue really tapped into that um, practice as well. But, you know, I, I think it would be a really difficult line to walk Um and especially when you stir gender into that, you know, uh, when you are trained that, no, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to comment on that. You know, it's unconstitutional to comment on that. Um, and that, I, I mean, of course, I don't know from, from a, you know, a eyewitness perspective, but I'm willing to bet that there were probably things she would have been willing to say if not held back by strong male advisors. Um, and of course, the the documents, I think it's, what, a hundred year embargo, Tammy? Mm, I'm not sure. 
so, but, you know, we, we won't see records about to answer some of these questions that we have to speculate on, I mean, in our lifetime. And those won't be released, I think, in our lifetime. Um, but, but yeah, there, there are things that I think many of us wish she would have spoken out, um, spoken out on or certainly spoken out more than she did. Um, there are, I mean, there are just a lot of really difficult conversations to have about, you know, repatriation of, of um, jewels, for example, or, mm -hmm. or museum artifacts, um, things that she was not involved in the taking of them, but didn't get involved in returning either. And, um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I hesitate to kind of voice an opinion on that, but it, but I, I certainly acknowledge that it's um, that those are really tough conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of the boy, the mess that uh, the Belgian monarchy is in. Mm -hmm. You know, they they <laughs> there's the descendants of Leopold, right? Committed atrocities mm -hmm. in uh, Africa. Now they're having to deal with the the mess, you know, the best they can. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Tammy Proctor, we're we're getting near the time we need to say goodbye to you, and I I definitely want to have you, you know, talk at least briefly about Elizabeth the Girl Guide. <laughs> okay, well, just one more thing about what Susan said. Um, I, I I do think that the the larger question that Charles maybe needs to deal with um, that Elizabeth didn't is that that the wealth of the royal family rests on many of these past uh, mm. uh, actions. And uh, the question of reparations, which has come up in many countries in many different um, settings, is one that, that I would hope the, monar the modern monarchy might deal with. I, I, don't, I don't actually hold, hold a lot of hope that that's going to happen, but, but it seems like something that Charles should be addressing. Mm. Um, in relation to some of the things Susan said. But um, in terms of girl guiding, yeah, um, Elizabeth and Margaret were girl guides uh, starting in 1937. They uh, were in the first Buckingham Palace company, which met in the garden of Buckingham Palace, along with some other children of, you know, um, uh, wealthy aristocratic families, basically. Um, they did badge work. They, you know had a leader who <laughs> who saw them through all of the um, uh, the activities. And then after World War II, actually, um, Elizabeth was a sea ranger, which was one of the older branches. And so learned a lot about um, boating and maintenance of boats. And um, she led a sea ranger crew. So mm. she's pretty beloved uh, among certain uh, Girl Guides in Britain, and Margaret was the patron of the organization until her death. Now it's one of the, it's, uh, I think it's Sophie now, I forget who the patron is, but it's all, there's always a royal patron. Um, and I think just in terms of the larger issue, it speaks to the ways in which the royal family um, function as figureheads in organizations, both in Britain, in the empire, the Commonwealth later on, and then really globally, um, you know, showing up at, like Princess Margaret would go to events that were for the World Girl Scout and Girl Guide organizations. Um, and that role that they play, that ceremonial role, was a full-time job. I mean, I think uh, I read that Elizabeth was still going to events something like 320 days a year when mm. she was 90 
five. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I might be getting the, the numbers wrong there. But basically, you know, it's that's the job. Mm. This is why Charles announced in his speech recently that he's going to have to cut back on some of his charitable work. Yep. Because mm-hmm. you got all the ceremonial work to do, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, well, let's let's take a break um, and uh, get to Tim Proctor to her class uh, <laughs> to ten o'clock, and we'll continue after the break with uh, Susan Cogan. We have Susan Cogan with us, who's associate professor of history, and uh, we uh, now say goodbye to USU distinguished professor of history Tammy Proctor. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thanks. We'll have more after this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Utah State University and the National Endowment for the Humanities, Dialogues on the Experience of War, Program Bringing War Home, Object Stories, Memory, and Modern War Project, Saturday, September 17th, at the USU Salt Lake Center, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., an artifacts roadshow where the public can share 20th and 21st century war objects and stories. Storytelling details at upr.org. Support also comes from utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. I'm Emma Parkhurst, host of Cropping Up. In this week's episode, we visit the Cache Valley Gardeners Market and chat with local ag producers, plus feature food demos from the event with Matt Lott from Blackstone Riddles, cooking up some tasty treats with locally grown fresh peaches and more. Tune in Thursday afternoon during All Things Considered and Friday on Morning Edition for more on Utah specialty crops and how you can incorporate fresh produce into your own recipes. Support for Cropping Up comes from the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food in partnership with USU's Hunger Solutions Institute and Create Better Health Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We have about 10 minutes left in our conversation. Uh, We've said goodbye to Tammy Proctor, um, who is Distinguished Professor of History at USU, and we still have with us uh, for this remaining time in the program USU Associate Professor of History Susan Kogan, who is joining us uh, by Zoom from, did you say Harlem in the Netherlands? Yes, Harlem outside of Amsterdam. Yeah, wonderful. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, to be with us, talk about uh, Queen Elizabeth II, recently passed. Uh, this ends uh, the second longest uh, era of monarchy in England's history, 70 years that uh, Queen Elizabeth served from her 20s uh, into her 90s. Um, mm-hmm. Anything you'd like to say, uh, Susan Cogan, about what uh, Tammy Proctor was saying before, before she left, before we move on to any other topics here? I think she covered it really well, and um, she was more... Uh, adventurous than I was in, in and it was plainly stating, and I agree with her that, that, you know, the issue of reparations really needs to be addressed. And, um, you know, that said, as a citizen of the U.S. Um, rather than a citizen of the U.K., I, um, I certainly don't want to put my foot in their politics. Um, but but there are some, like I'd said before, there are some really tough conversations that I think need to be had. And, you know, Charles III, I, can't, I still can't believe we're saying that. <laughs> um, Charles III is, has been an outspoken individual for much of his life and um, seems devoted to um, certain causes. Uh, one, of, one of them, of course, slimming down the monarchy, which we'll see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 what shape that takes, but um, that he might be the, the one to do it. Like like Tammy, I'm I'm not sure. I'm re- really optimistic about it, but he may he may well be the one to do it. Mm. 
This is, uh, I wonder what that's in response to. I'll, I'll fold this into a larger question, which is uh, kind of always in the background, I think, and I don't know how strong the movement is, Republican movement in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in England, in the, in the UK, but, you know, there are anti-monarchists, right? And uh, I suppose yes. if you're if you're the king or queen, that's in the back of your mind. We have to behave ourselves. We have to do a good job um, because there are forces there that don't want a monarchy. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, we'll see what, what happens with that as well. Um, I suspect that if the queen had died 20 years ago and um, – Charles would have would have inherited the throne on the heels of the divorce with Diana. Um, I suspect he would not have have earned enough public trust or affection or what have you um, to really be accepted as monarch. Um, he seems to have his reputation seems to have turned a corner in the last decade or two. And um, I'm more hopeful than I would have been uh, 20 years ago. It's interesting, too, the the anti-monarchical sentiment. I mean, Tammy alluded to this, and I've seen some of it, too, on social media, um, especially Twitter, and where there, there are some big feelings um, being voiced uh, on that platform. And so I've asked some, some British friends, um, academics, who, you know, they, they don't tend to be pro-monarchy. They're not all, they're not all anti-monarchy. Um, some of them, I think, are kind of monarchy neutral. And so I've asked them, what is this like for you? And, you know, friends in London, for example, who are sort of in the middle of all of the, the rehearsals for the funeral that will take place next week. And one of them had said, it's just so strange. You know, the Queen has been there all my life, whether, I, whether I've been irritated by her presence or not. It's just always been the Queen. And to think that that's gone. You know, that person is gone. That identity is gone. It's just so strange. Um, so, and, and then another one put it this way, sort of, even if, even if one is neutral on the monarchy, that they can't imagine the British people having the will to remove the monarchy, um, at least within the next generation, that it's, it's really a, a such a, firmly ingrained uh, part of British culture. And, you know, one of the things that came off of that conversation was, for example, what would they do with all the buildings? What happens to all the properties? Um, do you just turn Buckingham Palace into a museum? And, you know, and then how, how does that museum sustain itself? And so, you know, th- these are some really interesting, really good questions um, that, that I was surprised to hear given what I've, what I've, the conversations I've had with, with some of these people over the years about um, their irritation with the monarchy. Hmm. Uh, and it's, it's like we were talking before, it seems like the British love their ceremony, right? The pomp, the pageantry. If you got rid of the monarchy, that half of that would be gone, it seems like. Yeah, probably more than half. Yeah. Um, and just the tourism the tourism money that appears to be generated, I'm not an expert in, in economics at all. And someone could certainly um, push back on this, but, but the, you know, the tourism dollar or sorry, pounds that are generated by, uh, you know, you know, you can't go outside of Buckingham palace, for example, 
um, it seems at any time of day without seeing some tourists there. And there's a whole, you know, kind of operation of, of souvenir shops and so on um, right around that area, uh, souvenir shops in general that capitalize on, on um, royal paraphernalia. Um, and that was one thing that's, that has struck me so much as I've been kind of in the vicinity of, of um, the, the residences of the um, Dutch monarchy and the Danish monarchy um, earlier this month was that you, that you just don't see that. It's, um, it's like you're walking by a big house, but you don't have the souvenir shops with large postcards of, of the monarch's face, for example, um, around those shops. So it's just, it's so different um, in the areas of the continent that I've seen in the last week or two than what I've witnessed in London. Mm. Um, so I do wonder, you know, what kind of economic impact um, the tourism that is related to the royal family or, you know, to the idea of a British monarchy um, has has in, in London or in England full stop. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wonder... Uh what your take is on legacy, Queen Elizabeth, you know, either the, her, her reign as monarch or, or the person they're, they're probably different, mm-hmm. but just, we just have about a minute and a half for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a person, I, I wonder if because she died so late in life that, that she will be sort of remembered as, as everybody's granny um, as a political figure probably that that memory would I would imagine would be more um, varied and would differ depending on one's political views and and just sort of personal circumstances. Um, it was interesting one of one of these friends that I mentioned earlier who had asked about you know uh, about their experiences said it was fascinating that there was the the machinery of creating memory about the Queen's legacy went into action almost immediately. There was a 24 hour period of mourning declared um, at the time of her death. And that this really created a tone um, in, in starting the mourning process and, and the creation of that, that memory or that legacy. Um, of course, TV stations had been prepped for this for years, but this kind of somber tone that, that the populace was expected to adopt um, really made it a, a powerful mourning experience. So her legacy, I don't know. Um, historians don't operate in the immediate. So I think we'll figure out her legacy after several decades have passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, we'll leave it there uh, out of time. Uh, we've had with us uh, this hour, Susan Kogan, who's an associate professor of uh, history and uh, has joined us from Harlem in the Netherlands. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today. We'll go out as we are doing on Tuesdays with Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. When I speak to small groups, I often ask a hypothetical question. Given a choice between two countries, where would you like to live? The first country has a democratic form of government, but all relationships, political, economic, social, even family relationships in that country, are terrible, miserable, and dangerous. Society hardly functions at all. 
The second country is a monarchy led by an all-powerful king. But here, somehow, all relationships are perfect. Everyone gets along with everyone else, and society functions beautifully. So, where would you like to live? I know it's hypothetical, but if faced with this simplistic choice, where would you want to live? Almost always, people choose the monarchy with outstanding relationships. Occasionally, someone balks. They will say something like, I know what you're trying to do here, but I'm not buying it. Of course, anyone would choose the monarchy in that situation, but that's not the way it is. No, I'm not promoting monarchy or any other form of autocracy. My point is that the deciding factor is the quality of relationships, not the form of government. The reason to prefer democracy is that democracy, real democracy in form and substance, encourages healthy relationships, which build healthy society. If a democracy doesn't do that, something has gone wrong. Governments often tend to be power-driven, and a society ruled by power can result in fear, distrust, and abuse, which destroy relationships and a free society. People may argue that democracy offers individual freedom, but that would be only in a healthy society of healthy relationships. Power-based institutions and behavior breed fear and intimidation, which limit freedom. It is the pursuit of healthy relationships that promotes individual freedom. It is easier to do that in a democratic society. But if we forget the source of freedom and the reason for democracy, it's easy to slip into power mode, destroying both democracy and society in the process. At this point, I hope you're convinced of the dangers of power-based politics and of the need for relationship-based politics. If you agree with the five basic tenets of political relationism, you may be asking, okay, so how do we do that? Let's remind ourselves of the basic tenets. Society is a big bundle of relationships of all types. Healthy relationships are better than unhealthy relationships for many reasons. The primary purpose of government is to establish and protect an environment where healthy relationships prosper. The primary means of good government is healthy relationships. Our job as citizens is to find, elect, and support political leaders who have the best relationship skills and the most robust relationship portfolios, especially with those who may disagree with them. So you ask, how do we do that? Answer, we must educate ourselves and our children, and we must convince our leaders. Again, educate ourselves and our children, convince our leaders. In our last session, I advocated a well-educated people for a well-functioning, relationship-based democratic republic. It's easy to identify poorly governed countries with highly sophisticated technology and wonderful technical education. We need a more expansive coverage of classical humanities, as well as technical and vocational disciplines. Otherwise, we can lose focus. Technology alone does not produce a happy, successful people. You know that. The second idea is convince our leaders. We insist, diplomatically, but we insist. If we demand relationship-based leadership, they will listen and respond. We insist that our political leaders work together in spite of their differences. Stop the fighting. We tell them. 
We tell them at their rallies and firesides. We tell them when they knock on our doors. We write to them and tell them. We call in radio programs and tell them. We tell them with our votes. When nominating, we reject power-based candidates and demand relationship-based candidates. We renominate only those in office with strong relationship records. If we convince our political leaders of these ideas and educate our people in the workings of a healthy and free society, we have a chance to build a safe path through today's discord and build a highway toward peace and prosperity. I am a political relationist. You may be too. I hope so. This is Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Support for Eating the Past, heard only on Utah Public Radio, is made possible through a grant from Utah Humanities. Listen to episodes on this station Sundays at noon through our UPR mobile app or online at upr.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio. Thanks for tuning in today. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org.